Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a conversation with writer Nicholson Baker. Baker has written a new piece for the CGR print magazine about YouTube and how what started for him as a kind of harmless place to get distracted and entertained became a much darker political place that actually tells him some about the sort of nature of our current political moment. Baker's written a fantastic essay about his journey through YouTube for CGR, and he has a new book out later this month called Baseless, which is his attempt to use the Freedom of Information Act to understand whether the U.S. used biological weapons during the Korean War. He's a great person to talk to, especially at a moment of paranoia and misinformation and just a feeling of all of us being unsettled. And I'm really happy to have him on the podcast today. Nicholson Baker, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Kyle. You in Maine? Yes, on the Penobscot River in Maine. How has um, coronavirus lockdown treated you? Well, I mean, I'm a very distressed human being in a larger sense because there's so much struggle and unhappiness in the world. But as far as my own days, it hasn't affected me very much because basically I'm one of those reclusive writers who gets up in the morning and, uh, you know, sits at the kitchen table and writes. So that's what I do now. And that's what I did before. This virus, this period that we're living in just feels an awful lot like a Nicholson Baker novel. to me. <laughs> it does. Well, absurd uh, and surreal and and just not cohesive about this whole thing that just seems exactly like something that you would you would do. Well, the only thing is I don't like to write books, novels about people who are suffering and dying. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 and, and people are right now suffering and dying needlessly in some cases and um it's just horrible i've my nonfiction books i i mean some of them like there's one about world war ii obviously people yeah you know there's a huge amount of death in that book but i i basically feel myself to be a cheerful person and the nice thing about this whole period we've gone through is everybody has been sort of sort of thrown back and forced to think about go back to first principles what is yeah. life actually about i'm sitting here in a room and i've got my job and i've got my family and all that but what am i on this planet to do and so in that way it's been a kind of a healthy uh forced <laughs> long-term meditation session that we're all going through simultaneously and I'm I'm into introspection, so yes, I I see what you're saying about about well, the similarity to my world. And also, you do write about false narratives and misinformation. You mentioned your World War II book. You just are publishing a book called Baseless about biological warfare during the Korean War and your efforts to sort of cut through the fog of misinformation around that and there just seems to be so much false information swirling around around the coronavirus that's really what i meant when i when i said that it seemed like something that would that would appeal to you yes well i i think i'm i'm a, attracted to the kinds of personalities that 
develop crankish theories, but the crankish theories themselves are so ridiculous sometimes mm -hmm. that I, um, I'm just amazed at what people are able to believe. Um, and also, in the case of gigantic wars and um, disruptions, what people, very smart people, temporarily believe. I mean, there's a, there is a sort of um, psychosis that whole countries get into when they're in, in the midst of a large struggle, like a war, or in this case, um, a pandemic. And, and very smart people start saying the most absurdly nutty things. And that, that's just a phenomenon of, of panic, I think. Mm. And so the theories are just accelerating, you know, and, and they, and they, and they flip. I mean, they, they attach to both political sides and you can sort of see them be adapted by opponents and used against each other. And you don't think our fight against information, you, you think that this is sort of on the continuum of what we've seen for, for decades and decades. You don't think it's particularly worse now because a lot of people, frankly, blame Trump. Mm -hmm. um, for making all this worse, for sort of creating a climate of denialism um, that, you know, especially when you look at the coronavirus has, has sort of helped sort of foster these absurd ideas and ignorance of things that are fairly simple to do that could help pe keep people from dying that aren't being done. Um, but you don't think we're in a kind of weird cul-de-sac of badness around this stuff right now? <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Of course we are. I mean, I, the, uh, the, per, the current administration is worse than any other. And it's partly just the, the sheer, the leadership leading people in the direction of, of universal suspicion and, and talking about fake news constantly creates this level of cognitive noise in everybody. Uh, and, uh, and if you're a person who's, you know, got a reasonably sane outlook, you just you learn new ways to filter it out. But if you're somebody who's susceptible, um, all of a sudden, very weird theories that were, you know, way at the edges of cultural consciousness creep in towards the middle. And that's what we, we've seen with the, and that's what I, I guess that's why it was such a distressing experience in some ways, although in the end it had a happy ending, but, <laughs> but to write this piece about, YouTube was because I watched, I have, I, I saw the 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 various insanities um, that have been around since you know UFOs, the UFO stuff has been around for decades, and the notion that lizard-brained space creatures are living under the Antarctic continent is is not a new idea that it predates. So all of that stuff is there, but the uh, the stress of having a president who just simply embraces things out of expediency and pushes an idea because it helps him for that hour and a half has really accelerated the whole process and made it frictionless in a way. So you mentioned this YouTube piece, which you've written for the new issue of CJR, which will be coming out soon. And it's about the kind of role of YouTube as a purveyor of political information. What I find hilarious about that story, which is fantastic, and I so appreciate oh, you doing it. Thank you. 
What I find hilarious is that for the second time running and writing pieces about CJR, you agreed to do it and then found it so odious, the process that you're like, I can't do this. Because you did the same thing with this fantastic piece you did about watching TV news for us. And it was the same thing, right? Where you were like, this is like terrible. My life is going to suffer as a result. And then you end up writing this wonderful piece that tells us a lot about TV news. You had the same you had the same reaction to this to your initial descent into the YouTube rabbit hole. You're so right. And and I didn't I didn't know. I wasn't sure how much you knew of all of my ups and downs. I think partly, you know, you wrote about it in the piece. Yeah, well that's true. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't um, read what goes into the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I think that part of it is just that I'm. Uh, I think it's part of, partly just my personality that I am not as young as I once was. That I have self doubts that creep in. Um, so it's partly not it's it's not the actual topic. I'm I'm a tremendous putter offer of things and misser of deadlines. And so, you know, I'm absolutely the worst person to, I shouldn't say this, I guess, I have written a lot of magazine pieces, but I am a very, sometimes a very terrible person to ask to write a magazine piece because I go through a lot of doubts in the process of writing it. But these two were especially- Well, let me just say, I mean, in case it wasn't clear, I'm so happy you do it for us. So, so let, tell me about your, you know, so tell me about this YouTube piece, which you, you actually start out saying that you were, you, you sort of love YouTube for its, for the, for the sort of benign things that it offers. I mean, you love the kind of ridiculousness of it, the randomness of it, the sort of lightness of it, right? Oh yeah. Well, it's like saying, I love New York. I mean, this is a gigantic place. It's now something that's so infinitely huge that even to say that you love it is is a very uh, limited expression because there's so many neighborhoods and so many streets and byways and weather patterns in within youtube that it's um it's just gigantic and and it's a tremendous teaching aid so i i liked it initially because it brought about a certain diaristic urge in people who would never have written anything or published any diary, but they, but the idea that they could just talk into their webcam, this was in 2006 and seven, and and say whatever was going through their mind and post it, stimulated, it's just kind of outpouring of, of self, uh, of, of, of life, really, of, of miscellaneous human life. And so it was wonderful to witness that. And yeah. then, as as it as it as it got bigger, there was there were influxes of from all sorts of places, from standard news sources and uh, TV news, and people who had archives of old, you know, sitcom trailers and all that. But eventually, what happened also is that it became this tremendous micro learning tool. So, if you have a problem with your 2012 Honda Civics transmission you just type it in and somebody often with a bad microphone but somebody some somebody often the the two the youtube videos that are the cl- most the clumsiest are the ones that get right to the point and tell you what you need to do with that transmission fluid quickest 
And yeah, I, you know, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because I have young children <laughs> and they're addicted to these DIY videos on YouTube. Oh, really? What, yeah. what, what do they want to know how to do? They want to know like how to make, um, how to make sock puppets oh, yeah. or, I mean, during the, the early days of this quarantine and I, and, and my staff saw the ugly result of this, they looked up how to give somebody a haircut and they oh. gave me that haircut. Um, it is a, in their little brains, it's, it's a real source of authority. It is. And it's, it's, um, and I think that a lot of that experience is tremendous. And we just, I just have to say that YouTube has been, I think in so many ways, uh, an enormously enriching part of life. And I, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm a sucker for, you know, these people who come up with little craft projects, what to do if you have, you know, a bag of popsicle sticks and some markers. Yeah. And, and, and I watch them. I love them. It's like, I used to watch, you know, maybe Sesame street or something when I was a teenager and, and didn't, you know, need to know what thing was not like the other, but these, I still watched it. The, the, but YouTube is, a way of um, taking in uh, life in in hundreds of ways very quickly, and this feeling of being part of something multicolored and exciting and uh, and human because it's it's so voice based. Well, so we asked you to sort of begin use that as a starting point, but then to look at. How is how does it affected political speech, and that's when things sort of took the ugly turn for you. Well, right. I I like the idea that Betsy's original idea, Betsy Moray, the original idea was to tune in to YouTube and just see where it leads you, and and I I was very excited about that idea, um, and I but I unfortunately then looked up a few. I thought, well, I should know about these problems that people are talking about. You know these. <laughs> these worries about uh, radicalization. And so I typed in words like deep state. And suddenly I was in an alternative universe. It wasn't just mildly upsetting, though. It was something that was, um, I was shaken after I saw some of these videos because I realized that I was looking at people who seemed like plausibly reasonable human beings, but were just, they were just insane. You know, I was looking at human insanity and I, and it was an it wasn't a cheerful comic kind of insanity. It was a deeply suspicious, dark uh, worldview in which it was an it was a desire to have everything relate and everything relate in a nefarious way. You found it really sort of depraved and dark, or you just found yeah. it sort of like yeah, you did. Well, I mean, it, well, it was the it wasn't so much the um, it was the the first experience I had was of all uh, was the tremendous urge to for some reason youtube wanted to as as soon as i started to type in words like deep state and stuff wanted to give me the whole hillary clinton pedophile story that we now know about but it was that this other set of there was this long playlist that somebody had put together and it was a and so i just went down it and there was this man who wanted to talk about blood drinking and um uh, uh, the drinking children's blood um and he's a guy who uh is a former he says he's a former cia person and he's uh 
uh, he, he thinks of himself as a pundit, pundit, but he's, it's just the way he was describing this really medieval myth of behavior. And it's partly his, he's something of a, a anti-Zionist, you know, so there's this whole kind of medieval quality to that. Mm. But it's just, I, I was looking at, at stuff that was convincing people to believe in things that were obviously so, so ugly and wrong that, you know, it just, I just thought I, I didn't know. I didn't know it was all here. I mean, I thought I thought here I am bobbing along in my kayak on the surface, looking at, you know, how to make things out of popsicle sticks or whatever. <laughs> and, and they're underneath are these gigantic dark creatures that are kind of, you know, it's so is is what disturbed you about what you found on YouTube the the nature of what it was or your realization that this thing has reach and that it's affecting people's voting and their view of the world. Well, exactly. I think that it is the second. It's that there are always going to be people who have a kind of deep, suspicious paranoid approach to everything and some of that is just clinical and 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 then other people are kind of taken in but what's what the problem if there is a problem the problem with youtube is that it's so frictionless it's so easy to you know you talk about going down rat holes or when back in the in let's say let's say you were a ufo fanatic back in the day uh, you would have to go to the a certain aisle in the bookstore, and there, published by small presses, would be these mm. books. And you would you could still go down that rat hole, and you could still talk about the alien probes and the time you were you were abducted and all that. But it was just a little harder. Now it is a ma- it's a matter of seconds to be pulled into a world, and because mm-hmm. of of the way the smooth way you flow. With this, through these playlists, you flow from one thing to the next. Um, it's very easy to just kind of be immersed in a in a particular flavor of ocean, and and that's all. That's the problem. It's too easy. It's too quick. It's too simple to get done. It's great if you're doing research. Somebody like me, I want to learn about some particular political figure from 1953. Well, this is tremendous because in in 30 seconds, I can have heard his or her tone of voice, and, but it's not so tremendous if what you're attracted to are really disturbing things that are going to tamper with your sanity and shred up, shred and, and misplace your, the, your, the normal peers of your personality. If you're, if you're a person vulnerable to um, uh, emotional destabilization, YouTube is too good at what it does. And I must say that to complete the story here, that, that you, you found your way out um, in the, at least in the piece that you wrote for CJR, you, you basically found a way to get out of this morass and back into the sort of YouTube that you like. I did. I did. I thought, well, uh, this was thanks to Betsy, who's just a really, an, ins- an insanely a patient editor and every time i said no i can't do this she would say now just there is a way and you can do it and and you will do it and you've agreed and you'll do it on deadline 
<laughs> you have agreed to do it and you will do it. And I mean, I was really impressed. Actually, I thought I've got to learn how to get to yes this way because I, <laughs> this doesn't happen for me this way. But this is, by the way, uh, Nicholson's talking about Betsy Murray, who's the managing editor of CJR and, and the, um, the really guiding force behind these print magazines of ours. But go ahead. Exactly. Well, so what I what suddenly hit me, what I would use is I would use the experience of YouTube to uh, kind of overwhelm and, and even or sort of heal the psychic wounds of of. And they were I mean, I'm not going to say that I was a, a devastated human being, but they were just so deeply unpleasant. Some of the yeah. things that I saw that I, I was kind of paralyzed for a couple of days. So I would use the actual YouTube that I knew um, as a way of at least muting the things that I now knew, the dark things that I knew about YouTube as a radicalization engine. And it worked do in the way. Sorry. Do you still, do you on your own when you're not on assignment for, or, or doing research, do you go there just for pleasure still now? Well, I not only go there for pleasure, but as a journalist, uh, I go there for research all the time yeah. because it's it's so darn useful. I mean, I think there's so much to be said for being able to hear someone's actual voice and the way they present themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I, I use it all the time for yeah. that. So as a source, but as as a place to just go, like I, I used to love um, sometimes in insomnias. You know, I. I do still do this. I, I, I find some genre like uh, soccer videos in which, you know, some great soccer player makes un impossible goals. And I'll just watch yeah. a bunch of them. Russian car crash videos, capital equipment, slowly, slowly toppling. You know, there's something, especially if you're in that insomnia <laughs> zone. Yeah, I know and, you, and, and, and it seems like, I guess because the algorithm or something, the ones that I'm given are not ones that involve actual injury to people. It's that yeah. someone has, and sometimes it's triumphant. So someone has decided that they want to drive a very heavy truck on two uh, frail pieces of wood that are going from the dock to a ship is somehow docked 10 feet farther than it should. And you watch the thing get on and you hear all the shouting and the cheering and the worrying. And sometimes it makes it, sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's just, it, uh, there's something amazing to me. I, I, you know what the one, the one that's hilarious about the level of detail that you described that in. <laughs> well, but the one that, the ones that I think are the most inspiring and beautiful, uh, that I'm just infinitely grateful to YouTube for giving me because I didn't know they existed, are the anthologies of of human competence in small things. So the people who can do things with dough, little balls of dough when they, when they cook it, or they, especially the flinging of shovelfuls of cement up the, of, of a whole um, scaffolding so that the, 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 that the shovelfuls go from one person to another and, and, and they're building this whole building manually. It's just the, the level of, that the human organism has been able to come up with of doing things fast dexterity because they have not money in some cases very like cutting up melon uh 
very mindless, routinized jobs, but they've found a way to decorate their um, servitude with humor and with with flourishes. So the, you watch the guy and he's doing stuff with the knives as he cuts up the melon that no human being should be able to do. And it's like watching, you know, it's like watching the Olympics, like watching brilliant double axles and figure skating, except he's doing it with pieces of melon. <laughs> and it's well, that just, was fantastic. That just felt like a long piece of yours. I just love that. I love the detail of your description of all those things. Oh, okay. So let, let me ask you about your book, um, which the reason, one of the reasons I find this so fascinating, you're writing about, so basically you became intrigued by the, this notion that, that the, the U.S. used biological weapons during the Korean War. You sought government records on this through the Freedom of Information Act during the, in the last few years, in 2019, after Trump was in office and in, in, in this climate of sort of suspicion of the press. And, you know, you just waited and waited and waited and waited. And you wrote and, and you wrote about what you were pursuing, but also about how it sort of interspersed with your life. Uh, all that's true, except that I, I started, I got interested in the, in this whole question of whether there was an actual use of, of disease in a war zone in 1950 or 1952. I got interested in it about 10 years ago. And oh, okay. in, in 2012, I submitted 21, I request for 21 documents to the Air right. Force. And so uh, in 2012, so by the 2014, I started to, you know, write letter. What's going on? 2016, I, I wrote other books. I'm still waiting. And at some point, it, I realized that, that I would possibly die before knowing um, the, to, before getting any kind of response from the Air Force about documents that I knew existed. It's not like I'm saying, give me all your information on X. It's that I knew that certain interdepartmental memos to different people in the Air Force and out of the Air Force existed, and they were had been replaced by these withdrawal slips. So it's wrong to peg this then on this current sort of administration because the the sluggishness predates Trump, absolutely, and predates Trump. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, um, absolutely. The the sluggishness, yeah. the impossibility of getting information. Uh, from places, certain places, especially the the Air Force and uh, the CIA, has has just been true from the very beginning. Um, and that when when the Freedom of Information Act was being debated, uh, first introduced in the fifties, um, uh, I think what's the name of the guy's Reston, um, Jim anyway. James Reston, yeah. Was it was one of the person who testified and said, you know, one of the things that I think this committee ought to really pay attention to is the CIA, because one of the worst things that a journalist has to face right now is he has to he used he he has to publish things in the paper that he knows to be untrue. And this whole yeah. question of the CIA, Reston said, is something that really deserves um close attention by the committee. The CIA had, you know, was a, an engine of disinformation and used the press for a long time. And we know a lot more about that now. But uh, so I was just trying to fill in some pieces of, of a long ago story 
But then I ended up realizing I wasn't going to fill in the pieces. And so the story was this charged absence of response by government agencies in the face of the fact that there is on the books an actual law that says that they should respond in a timely fashion to inquiries from people. So that's what the book is about. It's about waiting. Yeah. I mean, we, we write a lot about the FOIA at CJR and it it seems to only be getting worse Mm -hmm. and it's being sort of weaponized. um, Like for government agencies are starting to say like, okay, you want this information? Here's like so much, here's volumes of information that are so intense that you could never possibly parse through them. So they, there's some, there is a tactic also to go the other way, which is mm-hmm. just to dump information, knowing that you can never, you'll mm-hmm. never be able to make sense of it. Yeah. And I would welcome that. I mean, that's, yeah, the, yeah. that strategy was, was used with people like Marx who wrote the Manchurian candidate book. Beautiful, yeah. amazing work of research, but he was able to, kind of, you know, plow through it. And it, you could, it's amazing how much I found. One of the things that's in the book is about a secret program at the Library of Congress that did bomb targeting, uh, figured out what, where to bomb in the Soviet Union and other Soviet bloc countries in the 50s. And the program went in all the way through the 70s. So I interviewed people. But what I found, the reason I knew whom to interview and what, what it was all about was because in the Library of Congress's own records were all the expense reports. So you could see where uh-huh. they, and they're filing for $2.43 worth of gas reimbursement because they'd gone to the Army Map Service, the CIA and the Air Force, whatever, to pick up maps, all of which went back to the Library of Congress where they had people pouring through stereo microscopes in order to figure out um, what to bomb. So it was a, it was a, um, it's it's always good to have too much information. What's yeah. so frustrating well, is is this what, what the strategy now of of not just not giving you enough, but not even going through the motions of sending yeah. you a letter and giving you a reference number. I mean, yeah. it has gotten so bad that it is just it's just shocking. Yeah, and there's no there's no repercussions for these people. There's nothing, but. The weird thing is that there are moments of sudden advance. The, the things that are most successful are the project-based things. Like there's this thing that Clinton did, which was the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act. That, uh-huh. that when, you, when you start up a project like that, it's like a vacuum cleaner, and it pulls all sorts of unrelated documents out, and there's a kind of flurry of declassification, and it's amazing what comes out. And the most, and the, one of the ones that's been true of the during the Trump administration, is the JFK, uh, all the JFK documents that were held back, and, mm. uh, and over the decades, and so I think it's early in the book, I realized that there's a particular JFK document that has nothing to do with the assassination, but it has to do with a project to make cuba suffer under castro and it and it has been it was held back it was redacted this passage since the beginning since the early 60s i guess it's 1961 or two that the document originated it's always been blacked out but as a result of the jfk records act suddenly in the trump administration you know suddenly this document is 
the, the veil is pulled away, and it turns out that what the CIA was discussing was a way not of temporarily sickening uh, the crop workers with a human um, biological agent, but that they would sicken the, the sugar cane plants themselves. And that, mm-hmm. was the, that was the thing that the, that the people in the highest places in, in the Pentagon, the State Department, and the CIA were talking about as a way to destroy the Cuban economy, uh, which was, had been under attack under Eisenhower, but mm-hmm. especially under Kennedy. So that, it's amazing that, that, yeah. that suddenly there can be these little openings and, and the most amazing thing for me in the book, and then I'll, I'll be quiet about this because obviously I'm, but it is just that I write the whole book and I had a whole section with this ridiculously redacted document from 1949, so a long time ago. And then just a week or two before this book was going to press, in the mail comes uh, Manila, and you know I open it up and it's the, the document. It's the, the document that has been redacted for all these years and was not nobody was responding to it and now the whole thing not there's not a single line there's not a single blackout bar anywhere in that document i could read the whole thing through and it was it was not only a revelation but it was it felt like a happy ending i thought well you know i wrote the book and and so much was held back but i actually got something out of the federal government hmm. well you can read Nicholson Baker's book, Baseless, which is out later this month, and his piece on YouTube, which is in the coming issue of the Columbia Journalism Review. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. And I do want to say it was really, I learned a lot from this experience. I mean, I really learned from Betsy's insisting that I had to finish it and from the, and from being part of, of this and that I have to pull myself together and that there is some some use sometimes to finishing things that in the middle seem unpleasant because I'm really happy with the way it turned out. So thank you, Kyle. Thank you. So you can read Nicholson Baker's piece and all the other pieces about the election at a time of reckoning in the country in the new CGR print magazine, which is just coming out now and is available on our website at cjr.org. You can also catch up on the latest media news via our daily email newsletter called The Media Today. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 